Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Business. Today, we're sitting with Danny Hughes, who's the president of Sandblast Securities. I'm going to let her give you the intro, but uh, I think we have a lot to talk about. So, Danny, nice to see you again. Great to see you too. Thanks, Corey. Yeah. So, like I said, let's. I wanted to save the small talk for this conversation here and almost go without guidance. But I think the best place to to start is for the guest to get a bit of a background on yourself. You've been Wall Street throughout your career. Uh, you've been a commentator, a frequent guest for CNBC and Fox and so on. Wall Street is something you know, and our audience needs to uh, a bit of your advice. So let's hear it. Sure. So I started off in the industry back in 1991, and I became a broker because I was bartending at a place and I knew nothing about the stock market. And some guy said to me, you know, you'd be a great stockbroker. And I was like, well, what's a stockbroker? So I had no idea. I went into this, what turned out to be a boiler room, although I didn't even know. But what I was really impressed with was all of these cars and watches and all the stuff that these guys had. And I thought, well, I, gosh, I got to learn what they're doing. And so I became a stockbroker. I passed all the exams. And fast forward a couple of months, you know, I hated it. I absolutely despised it, but I happened to be really good at it because there were very few women dialing for dollars in those days. And so I wasn't getting hung up on and people were responding to whatever crazy thing I was selling to them. And I ended up, I was in San Diego at that time. And I ended up realizing that stock brokering was not for me, but I wanted to learn more about the financial industry. So I moved back home to New York, which was where I'm from originally. And I got a job on a market-making desk. So I was like the third assistant to the top guy. So basically what I did, Corey, was I went and got the coffee. You know, I I picked up the lunch downstairs, but I learned a lot. And I learned a little bit about kind of like what was going on on the inner workings of Wall Street. So market makers are the guys that at that time bought on the bid and sold on the offer and tried to make the spread. And in those days, the spreads were giant. You know, you're talking a dollar, two dollars in some cases. So they were making big, big money. And I loved that industry. It was all math. It was really interesting. It was all screaming and yelling. And I finally became pretty good at that, became a vice president, and then decided that I had such a chip on my shoulder that I I was like, well, you know, if these guys can do this, I can do this. So I ended up starting my own firm in 1999, um, bought out all my partners a few years later on September 6, 2001 two blocks away from the World Trade Center. And then off to the races from there. So I started a firm called Divine Capital Markets. At first we made markets, but then we became agency only. We dealt with family offices, hedge funds, institutions large and small. And I worked my way up to really embed myself within the corporate treasury world and institutional world. So we were executing for some large corporates, um, doing buybacks, doing all kinds of introductions for capital, And in 2020, my business got acquired by a larger firm called Sandblast Securities, which is a Black-owned firm uh, based out of Atlanta. And that's where I am now. 
Yeah. I'm so glad I reached out because I mean, it's, as you know, I'm up in Canada and have experienced, I think, a similar kind of world as you have, albeit in the Canadian public markets and on the juniors. And the similarities are fascinating, but where to go with this? I think, you know, even if we're to just tap into that experience that you've had on Wall Street and working with issuers or basically your public companies, your clients, raising capital, if you're to come out of the gate and just give advice straight up to these guys or these ladies who are out there looking to raise money, working with bankers, what is that? What is that advice? Where do you see these guys fall down all the time? There's a couple. I mean, things have changed so much, Corey, as you know, like back in the day, I would give much, much different advice than I would now. And what's really changed is the democratization of the markets, of of the access to capital. But there are so many choices now that it's really hard, I think, for an issuer to decide, you know, should I go this route? Should I go that route? Should I go public? Should I stay private? You know, should I raise money on this platform? Should I go with an investment banker? So what I would say is, you know, the first thing that you have to do as a company is really think about who you want to emulate. And I don't mean like, we want to be Amazon. That's a little far-fetched, but look kind of like at your level. So if you're if you're a lower middle market or middle market company, what kind of companies do you kind of want to be when you grow up? And really study how they raised capital, who were their advisors, maybe even reach out to them and ask them a little bit about that process. Um, I think that's one really good way to kind of get your head around what the opportunities are out there. Another really good idea is to know who your customer is. You know, are your customer, where are they sitting? You know, where are those customers sitting? And you want to be in their face all the time. So whether that's raising money or marketing your services, try to always be in front of those types of people. So who's marketing them? To, so like your company, for example, you're you're very digitally focused. You're digital natives, as we would say. That's absolutely where companies have to be now. So they can't just be brought around, you know, by the leash by some guy who's knocking on doors here and there. That's old school. You don't do that anymore. You need to have like a really huge focus and it's got to have a digital component. So you need somebody who's native there. And then I would say, finally, you know, working with an investment banker is a great thing, but you've got to really know where their strengths are. So not only if you like your investment banker, but understand like who they raised money for in the past. What were their successes? What were their failures? I think this is a really important question to ask anybody that you're dealing with, because they're always going to tell you like, oh, I'm so great at this. I'm so great at that. Look what I did here. and Look what I did. Well, what did you screw up with? What was the biggest failure you had? And that will tell you so much more than all of the great successes that we've had. I think that's so huge, right? Is, you know, investment bankers will and brokers will walk around with all their tombstones. They'd be all in there, you know, in their office and look how much money we raised for this company and that company. But it's like, well, at what price? And then what happened? Right. And, exactly. and so I think that's uh, that's something that is I've seen companies go down the path of signing up with bankers and wanting to raise the money. I mean, sometimes they do. Great. The banker took his fee. He probably, you know, placed the paper with a group of investors. He didn't really put a lot of, you know, care into in a frothy market. And then the thing tanks, right? Like they don't have the the aftermarket support or the after financing support. Exactly. And I think that's such something that a lot of junior companies probably fail to see. I'm not so much, I've never dealt within larger companies, you know, kind of up higher in the market, but it just seems like such a, an easy part of due diligence, which is overseen because you get yes. like wrapped up in the BS of the success of raising the money. Well, it's like, right. that's just one, the first part. Exactly. That's the transaction. So looking at it like it's a transaction, I think is so short-sighted because that's just a one-time thing. And as you said, 
if you don't have that support in the aftermarket, if you don't have like a long-term strategy, big companies get to be big because they think about a five-year plan. They don't blow it off and say like, oh, well, we don't know because technology is going to be so different. So we'll only look at this year. Completely short-sighted. You've really got to think about a five-year plan. You have to have that sense of urgency because that's the only way you're going to close, right? Your transaction. But you have to be authentic in the sense of realizing that First of all, we're not in a frothy market anymore. And even if we were, the smart thing to be is really real about where you are, not like pipe dreams, but really where about what's your math, where are you right now, and where are you going realistically? Because I think that's something that never goes out of style. That's totally classic. So if you can stay true to where you're going um, and be very authentic with all of your investors and everybody up in your up and down in your food chain. recipe for success. So how do you do that though? And I just, I'm thinking back to when we first connected, I mean, it might've been a month ago and I just finished up uh, reading Bad Blood, the Theranos story, right? And what struck me there is that fine line between like building the future and fraud. And so my take is if you go in, you're going to raise five, 10, 50, hundred million bucks and you walk in and you tell them the facts if you don't have any of the fiction to go along with it, like the future of what we're building, the excitement and the emotion of that, the raise is going to fall flat. So there's, there is a component of projecting the future, but there's also got to be a foundation of facts. How do you balance that? Because I'm sure you've been with, worked with companies who had amazing stories, but then fell short. But I'm sure you've also seen some companies which had the perfect fundamentals, but also fell short because they couldn't tell a story. Yeah, so exactly. Where do you land? What's what have you seen? What advice do you got for that? Oh my gosh, there's there's everything in between, right? So I've talked to companies, I wouldn't say that are that are as fraudulent as Theranos necessarily, but they have the same kind of mix of this, you know, everybody's going to let's take for example cryptocurrency. Okay. Everybody's going to accept it. Someday you're gonna go everywhere you're gonna go, you'll be able to use cryptocurrencies. You're gonna be you're, it's going to infiltrate the entire world. You just wait and see. You know, yeah, that might be true. Okay. That might be true. However, we are here right now. And right now that is not the case. There has not been a mass acceptance of cryptocurrency. There's a tremendous amount of doubt in the marketplace. So what you have to do is have those building blocks. You know, education is the hardest component of actually being a, a newer business or a newfangled business as you like to say, you know, because you have to educate people as well as sell your product. That's a really really tough ask. So when companies have that component of having to be educators and also having to run a business, they need to have these stepping stones where you're seeing these are the thresholds of success. You know, we're going to be in this band in next year. We're going to be in this band next year so that they're actually building either that revenue or that acceptance and hopefully it's revenue and hopefully they're profitable, but they're building those and stacking those stones up so that you can see the future eventually once they, they show through. So really it's about it's about the show me part of seeing businesses and getting to know them. And that's not transactional. So that's why I like to work with companies where I'm with them for the long run. I'm not just with them for like, okay, we're going to raise you money in three months and then I'll see you later. Because that doesn't do me any service. It doesn't do any of the clients that I have any service. They want to see that follow through. They want to see that relationship develop further. That's a huge one. It's like, what a mistake for companies to look at financing 
or you know, M&A as a transaction. The relationship with your banker and your advisors should not be transactional. It should be long-term. 100%. And, yeah. And then 100%. I really like that point of, doesn't matter the business you're in, but effectively you have to get into the, the business of educating, educating yes. investors, educating the market and showing the, the building blocks of how these things are coming together. Absolutely. You're right. And oftentimes your investment banker or your advisor is your translator because they're essentially taking what you're doing, what your model is, what your theory is of business, what your ideal is, what your big audacious goal is. And they are, they are then translating it to the types of investors that want to be on that ride. So you need that translator, not just for the transaction, but to continue to build that not only customer base, not only education base, but also your investor base. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. And I can't believe I've never thought about that before. But when you're working with your bankers or your financial advisors for, for raising capital, to put them as translators is so true. And I, you know, I reflect on my days raising capital. And it was like every pitch we did was different. So yes. every time we would we would have a pitch deck that almost had to change by meeting to be able to communicate to the kind of investor we we're speaking to. And ultimately, the outcome was all the same. We were always aiming to deliver like an outsized return for them. That yes. was our promise, or that was the goal. The story and how it fit to the, the way they viewed the world was something that we would work on and ultimately be translating for the companies we would work with. So I, I never thought about it that way. That's really hopefully helpful for the CEOs and IR pros out there. Who are yeah. looking and saying, how do we build more relationships? And it's a, it's a translation exercise. Exactly. You want to be right in between the the money and the need, you know, and you want to be able to make sure that that runs congruously, and you want to make sure that nobody's missing anything, and you want to make sure that you're being authentic, like you're making sure that the company is saying the right things, that the company's for real. You have to do your diligence before you even take them to somebody else. And you want to make sure that your investor base truly understands where we're going on this bus. So it's a lot of that back and forth translation. Sometimes it just doesn't translate or sometimes they just don't want to get on that bus and that's okay too. But as long as your role is to really make sure that the company is making it clear to investors where they're going and how they're getting there. What I've seen a lot of is like, I think, well, definitely in Canada, Cannabis came out of the gate and you started to see a lot of junior companies pop up and raise a lot of capital in the public venture markets. The world of digital and the world of communication of of strategy and and of of delivery of message completely changed. And it put digital and into the world of IR, uh, the world of engaging. Now, they kind of pioneered that. And what I would say is they bought the brought the best practices of digital marketing into investor relations, like consumer marketing, if you will. Mm, mm-hmm. I am seeing though, and I'm curious if, if you see this as well, though, is that there, there has to be a balance and it almost swung too far and one pen, the pendulum went too far, but we still need those IR pros to be building with the relationships, but with the synergy and the match between almost sales and marketing. IR being sales, marketing being the digital to go out there and get as many eyes on the, the story as possible, followed by the IR people to go out there and then engage that interest. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to the sense of urgency, right? What, what yeah. are we doing? When are we doing it by? Can I just like look at this next week or is this something that I have to get to by Thursday? 
right? And then also just the authenticity of the messaging. Like, what is our message? Are we being really clear with it? And are we telling it to the right people? You know, I think that that is, there are a lot of different industries and businesses that have a really finite audience, you know, that only get that slice of business, but then there's a lot of other people who get excited about it. So I think that digital messaging is so incredibly important and it's changed the face of investment banking so dramatically over the past, I would say five to seven years, because what investment banking used to be, and still is to some degree, is that, you know, you hire an investment bank and they go around to all of their relationships and introduce you, you know, to the right mixture of those relationships. But now there are these platforms and the platforms are agnostic. So there's a bunch of different investment banks plugged into them and all of this different, you know, investment flow into it. So, you know, my audience is not only looking at my deals, but they're looking at Joe's deals and Sally's deals and Fred's deals too. Now, that's not, that doesn't jibe well with a lot of investment bankers because they kind of have that trader mentality of like, this is my stock. And if I'm out for the day, nobody's talking about it. <laughs> you know, like this is my yeah. business. These are my guys. Nobody can talk to them except for me. But that has all changed. So that transparency has changed everywhere in the financial arena, you know, and, and to its detriment in some areas and, and to its benefit in others. But I think there's a much wider reach now that investment bankers have, especially if they're connected to the right digital platforms uh, and people who have digital platforms. So I think that the opportunity for companies is much better because there will be more volume. There will be more eyeballs. There will be more money flowing. That's an interesting one. I mean, it has been so much like like I've sat down at the table with with individuals and they say that token phrase, which just pisses me off. But like, you know, those are my guys. Yes. And like my exactly. instant reaction is go yourself, right? Like I'm just, yes. you know, come on. But I think that's an old school mentality. And so yeah. take me further into that of how that's changing with these new platforms you're seeing. And maybe you can just for the audience and for myself as well, can you qualify it in the sense of like what kind of deals, what kind of bite size, what kind of money being raised, you know, is this crowdfunding or is this actual like kind of platforms more within the world of, of traditional banking? What are you seeing there and how's that changing? Yeah, this is probably a podcast with multiple chapters in and of itself, but uh, it I'll is, give you yeah. like, like the big picture of what we were kind of talking about with respect to like, this is my book of business and you can't touch it. So traders would be like, you know, the guy from Prudential would only call me. And so, you know, if I was off the desk, he didn't want to give the order to us. He's going to give it to another firm, right? So that kind of relationship is really important. But what happens there when you only have that one touch point at a company is like, that person has to go to the bathroom. That person might be out. You know, you're not going to get the highest quality of everything unless you have multiple touch points at places. That's just the, the power of digital everything, right? Is that is that you, they're 24-7, they, no, no bathroom breaks for these computers, right? So that means that the volume can increase dramatically, which is mm. what has happened in the financial capital markets and certainly in trading, et cetera. So I think that the platforms that are out there that have grown more recently are the ones that are the crowdfund, the equity crowd crowdfunding platforms. And I think that those platforms are really exciting. I think what they're doing is really innovative, but we still have the same issue that there's no secondary market trading for this stuff, right? It's like they're inviting investors in and saying like, oh, this is such a great brand and oh, they're going to go to the moon, but why get out? Like that question isn't like, 
at the tip of everybody's tongue. It's kind of down there in the FAQs. Like there is no secondary market for this, so you can lose all your money. Unlike investing in public markets, where you could still lose all your money, but there might be some liquidity, you know? Yeah. I just want to point out though that like yeah. these crowdfunding platforms are now raising real money. Yes. Like well, well, well into the millions. It's not yes. just, you know, oh, $5,000 from friends and family. It's real money. A hundred percent. And real companies are going out there and raising their ABCD, you know, series rounds. So they're raising big, big money on these platforms in addition to going out to institutions. Institutions are even making sure that they have somebody keeping an eye on these platforms so that they can see what's out there too. So I think that not only do you have the acceptance of the, you know, broader, say, family office and high net worth investor, maybe the angel investors, but you also have institutional investors that are saying, we got to be on those platforms too, because not only do we maybe want to put some money into the platform itself, but we also want to be there for these companies when they get to the next level and want to IPO or want to take it to the next level. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Further to that, I'm curious about when you're working with with investment banks or let's say Sandblast and I was a company and issuer come to you and I wanted to raise capital. What's an ideal client look like for you and not by sector or anything like that, but in how they work with you? You know, what would just make a dream client? Yes. So we work with a wide range of companies, right? So we're talking about companies that are maybe doing like probably our entry level is like series A, maybe we'll take a series A all the way up to secondaries for public companies. But the perfect company for me is a company that is extremely transparent. They don't look at me like I'm on the other side of the table with them. Like they've got to really like bang me up in order for me to do my job, right? They look at me as like, I am a partner for their success. So they're looking to us for advice. How should we address the market? How much money should we really be raising? Is this the right strategy? So all of those conversations are on the table instead of, you know, we know what we're doing and, you know, we've got this and all we need is for you to do the transaction and you just introduce us to those people behind those doors. Because what we may even say to some companies is, look, you've got to have a multi-pronged approach. We're going to go here first and then we're going to go on this platform and then we're going to see how those things come out. So I think that companies that are flexible in in how they approach the market, number one, number two, are super transparent. And number three, are willing to understand that the markets move all the time. Look at the market that we're in right now. You know, five months ago, it was a frothy mess. And now everything is being downgraded as we speak. You know, valuations have just completely come off the top. So, and you never know when the window is going to close. You really don't. But Money is always necessary for companies to run. So we're always going to have companies coming in the door. It's their ability to be really realistic about what they can raise and when and how aggressive to be. You know, I I think that that's something that I see time and time again, where companies are saying, like, I know that I can get this valuation and they don't have any flexibility around that. That doesn't help them. That doesn't help me. Yeah, they have to have flexibility because investors know they see, you know, the company only has the company. They only see what their operations are, where where they came from, where they think they're going. But the investors that they're addressing see 50, 100 deals like them a week. So they know exactly what to ask. You know, so the company will come back to me and say, like, well, they didn't pay any attention to blah, blah, blah. 
they know exactly what they're looking for and they know exactly what they're looking at. So it's really, you know, more in tune of just being very realistic, taking in all the data and being flexible. Hmm, interesting. The flexibility there is, is a powerful component, I think, to if you can find a synergy to bob and weave with, you know, between uh, company and advisor. So, yeah, I, yes. I think, I hope the audience takes that, you know, to heart because it's especially in markets that can change so quick. You have yes. to be able to, to bob and weave to it. And sometimes, you know, I've said to companies before, like, if the money's available, take it. Right. Like don't say, oh, well, you know, I want to hold out for X better valuation because I mean it's, you know, within reason. The the exactly. answer should be take exactly. It. Yeah. We used to say that's a KIM, a keep in mind. You know, keep in mind I care at this level, but keep in mind the next time you call me, I may not care. I may not yeah. care at that level at all. And it also brings to mind something else that we're talking about here too, especially in the public markets, Corey, is that companies will often more often than not say to me, well, you know, we're discounted a lot. You know, this is not really our valuation. We should be up at X. Well, then let's put a strategy together where you're buying back your stock, like do something about it. You know, show right. your investors that you care. You have, you have a lot of angles where you can actually shareholder value, build that shareholder value without just complaining about it left and right and paying attention only to your stock. You know, go out there and do something about it. Now, it seems every issuer out there, every company out there wants only institutional investors. They're like, oh, well, we just need more institutional investors. Like, yeah, <laughs> okay, you too. And, you know, obviously we're speaking with the, you know, in the, the realm of the juniors and the, the earlier stage public companies. Retail can be a very powerful and sticky component of that. But when it comes to actually increasing the retail shareholder base, who, you know, ends up on the cap, tail, cap table kind of thing, what strategies do you see and how long does it take to do that? And what should companies be doing to actually make relationships with institutions and get their money? That's a really great question. And I can give you an analogy that I think a lot of business owners will understand. You know, when you're going after direct-to-consumer DTC and you're doing marketing and you're selling these little one-offs, you know, you're selling your product here and there to mom and pops. It's expensive. It's expensive. It takes a long time. There's some educational component. You got to try a whole bunch of different things, but all in all, it's expensive. Whereas where you're doing an enterprise sale, where you're selling to one company that's then selling to a whole bunch or, or selling internally to their own uh, systems and tiers, it may take a little while longer, but it's a one and almost done. You know, then you still have to service it. So there's a big difference there. It's the same kind of difference in addressing investors. So the retail market, it takes a lot longer and it's more expensive. So you may have to pay more for those introductions. You may have to basically infiltrate a larger, say, advisory firm, an RIA or something like that, where you're building relationships over time with each and every office, with each and every broker or advisor in those structures. Whereas to sell to an institution, you know, you might be talking to two or three guys, you might be talking to five guys at one shop, it may take a little while, but once they're in, you know, they're going to make an investment over time, not over time, excuse me, at once. So the institution, though, especially if you don't have any institutional investors, they could come to you and say, well, we want a discount on that, you know, or we want to, you know, we want to do a, a pipe offering, or we want to do something where we're getting stopped for a much deeper discount. Whereas retail, you don't have to offer them anything like that, right? So there's a whole bunch of different levers that you have to move. I would say that 
finding that institutional investor, especially that first institutional investor is going to take a little while, but it's absolutely worth it because most institutions will say to you, first thing they say coming in the door, well, what other institutions are in? You know, in the same way that venture right. capital, well, who else is in? Who else is buying? You know, they do things as like a clutch of grapes. You know, they don't, they okay. don't do anything yeah. by themselves, right? So it's harder to get that first institutional investor, but it's absolutely worth it. You're also, sorry to go on and on about this, no, but, but I, I do think that it's important, like for a retail experience, you might be going through a lot of different retail firms. So you have a number of different relationships with different shops, whereas with institutional, you may have one relationship with an investment bank that's taking around or an advisor that's taking around to different institutions. So that relationship is really critical and has to be a long-term relationship. Yeah, I, I see where you're going there on the, the long-term piece. And that effectively the enterprise sale. And yes. you know, it's it's amazing when you think about investor relations and building up the yeah, your your investor pool for a company, for a public company or a private. It is there's so many similarities between marketing for a consumer product and marketing for an enterprise product or marketing and sales of it. A few things that that come to mind for me are uh, in that, like when you're going after retail, they mm-hmm. can become the stickiest shareholders there. If they really Absolutely. become convicted in it, they can, you know, sop up some of your stock like a sponge and it's going to stay, which is a really good thing. Followed by I think when you start to think about brokers and when it comes to the kind of the retail brokers and engaging them, one thing I see is so important is give them the two or three at most sound bites that are going to make them look smart in front of their clients. Because they're not going to, for a second, go and try to sell your stock to their clients unless they feel a good conviction that it's a good story, followed by that they're not going to look like an idiot trying to explain what you do. And then I think for institutions, I mean, that becomes a a longer relationship play demonstrating, hey, here's what we're going to do. And then you come back and say, look what we did. And your valuation might not have gone up. But you've created value within the company of, of you know achieving XYZ in an organizational milestone or a business milestone, they'll eventually catch on and say, hey, these this group is performing and they're actually truly undervalued and then want to come and buy in. Yes. It's a long-term game across all of it. It's so true. And I mean, you're an expert at the storytelling part because I think that that is such a critical component of buying and selling anything in these markets, whether it's a private company or a public company, but the story behind things, the real, you know, the blood and sweat and tears behind these companies is really what becomes sticky. It's it's what you love to hear. It's what I love to tell. And, and that's what keeps you going. And, and that's the history of, you know, knowing and loving and investing and selling and never talking to again, these companies that we actually have built our, built our careers off. So that storytelling piece, Corey, is so critical. And so getting a company, having a company really understand how they're telling the story and what parts of the story they need to make sure that they tell and what parts of the story are for certain types of investors only. Like you only want to tell the institutions this big part of what you're talking about because they're the only ones who are going to care. Not like you're hiding anything from retail, but that's not really a message for retail market. This is what the institutional guys want to know. You know, so I think that that is such an important part of the big picture. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it is. I want to I want to shift gears here. I'm really curious to hear your perspectives as a woman on Wall Street and get your take because I mean there's no doubt um, that 
it has been and probably still is a boys club for sure. In fact, I look at one of the books behind me, Straight to Hell, which is a, an account of somebody's experience. I think it's Jeff Lefebvre, something like that, who's, I mean, my God, it's just, it's, it's a full contact sport just for a yes. bunch of dudes. And you're a woman, you are a woman in the industry. So tell us about it. Sure. I mean, when I first got into the business, as I mentioned earlier, like I was in a, I found myself in a boiler room and I had no idea that it was a boiler room. I didn't know that that wasn't a good thing. But what I did see was like, there were all guys and me and I loved that. Not because I loved the guys, but because it was fun. It was exciting. It it was really interesting to me. And I, and one thing that I will tell you is that for the most part, the guys didn't really think that I'd amount to anything. So I was kind of like the discount bin, you know, Okay. that, fueled me in a sense, you know, and even getting to on the market making side, I think I was one of four or five women on a giant desk full of guys. And while it was totally ridiculous, Corey, I mean, it was like the 1990s and there weren't like, there were no rules, you know, so I'd come in on a Wednesday and I'd have like a skirt on and one of the guys would be like, Oh, I didn't know it was sexual harassment day. And, you know, I'd go along with it. So like only a few people could go along with stuff like that, like the kind of stuff that was said on that desk. You would never say right now. You would get in so much trouble. But I would give it out just as much as they, you know, gave it to me, which is where the the banter was. It was okay with me because I would give it out just as bad. And I didn't really feel threatened by any of these guys. And some of them were really ridiculous and disgusting. I mean, there was this one guy, Norman, that I used to sit, sit next to. And before I sat next to him, the boss, the head guy who owned the whole firm, brought me into his office and said, dear because he didn't ever remember anybody's name. Dear, listen, I'm going to sit you next to Norman, um, but I don't want any problems. As if like I was going to give the problem, right? So he never told Norman that he didn't want any problems because I was sitting next to him. It was me that had to deal with it. So he was the type of guy who would eat like tuna fish every day. And I'd have an umbrella that I'd have to put up next to me like this so that when he was talking, his tuna fish wouldn't get all over me. He was disgusting. It was gross. People were smoking on the desk. It was really, really disgusting. However, it was a very big learning experience, not so much in the dynamics of of humans, but more for the math and what happened and and what the the inner workings of the markets were. Those have all changed pretty dramatically, but the economics and the basis of them all still very much the same. So fast forward to building my own business you know, again, I was, I was inspired because I was reverse inspired. I thought, well, if these guys can do it, then I can certainly run my own firm. And I knew nothing about nothing, like nothing about running a broker dealer. I knew about, you know, trading. That was it. That was my own little fiefdom, but I didn't realize like you have to know about healthcare and employee rights and all of a sudden renting stuff. And I had no idea, but I learned it pretty quickly and maybe had to learn it and relearn it and relearn it here and there. But running my own firm as a woman and finding those other women in the industry that I became close to, one of whom is actually my partner at, at Divine Asset Management, my, my very, very good friend and partner, Val Sanchez. She and I worked together on the trading desk in the very, very early days. She was one of the first women that I met. And you know, there are women that are in this industry that have been in this industry for, for a long period of time that still are very, very connected to each other. And I think that, you know, that has been a really great grounding for me. Being a woman in the financial industry, one other thing that is really an incredible insight is that, you know, the financial language was made up by men for men. Women had no part of this stuff. And in many realms still don't. 
because Wall Street doesn't talk to women. Wall Street talks to mostly men and some women who want to listen. But I think that that game is changing pretty dramatically because there are many women in positions of power in, in this industry that are speaking this language differently, that are talking about money differently, that are really giving the vision of financial future to women in a way that that we like to be talked to. So that change has mm. been really dramatic. And look, when you invite another 50% of the population into something, guess what? It grows. <laughs> and especially yeah. with women being that they are the big spenders, you know, that the consumer yep. culture is they what make the, runs uh, the this bigger planet. spending choices. Yeah. Yeah. It's women. It's women making those decisions 80, 85% of the time. So you want them on your side. <laughs> I'm curious in your advice for women entering the world of finance now, right? Like, yeah, it tends to be an all men's kind of sport, but, and I always use that analogy for some reason, but what advice do you have for them? Because there, there's a degree of like, I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but you have to have a thick skin. It's not a nice place to be, right? Like it's exciting, but it's a grind and it can be a grind emotionally. Um, so I'm curious about your input there and advice for women entering the industry. And then also maybe you can touch on the advice you have for building relationships among women in the industry, because I think it's different than that is for men building. You know, it seems like if it, for, for two men to insult each other back and forth and then have a laugh, it's like, oh, okay, now we're communicating. How yes. is that for women in the industry? So if you can touch on those, maybe there's something that would be of use. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on the last piece first, you know, one big eye-opening experience for me. And this happened when I was on the trading desk and I worked for the son of the owner and I screwed something up. You had to put everything in via a keyboard and it had to hit, you know, you, you were doing the math in your head and, and putting in buy, sell, buy, sell. And I put something in wrong, something that should have been a buy, sell. So it, it screwed up our average cost. And as soon as I hit enter, I saw that I did it. And so did he on his screen. And he started screaming at me every word in the book, the F's, the S's, but you know, you, oh my God, I can't believe, like screaming his head off, open, you know, trading desk. Everybody heard it. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so I'm like, I'm like, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And as I'm fixing it, I'm like, am I out of here? As soon as I fix this, is he going to throw me out? Like, or is it at the end of the day, do I get fired? Like what happens, you know? So a few minutes later, after I had fixed it, things kind of calmed down for a minute. And then he turned to me and he looked at me. So what do you want to get for lunch? And I was like, okay, okay, I get it. Like that was you just blowing off steam. Like you're some kind of animal. And like, now we can all just be friends again. Like we were two minutes ago or five minutes ago. Like I have to have that kind of a skin where it's, I can't take it personally. So that is the number one rule, not only in finance, but in business in general is do not take stuff personally. It is not about you. It is about what's going on in that person's head or that customer's head, or that business's head, it has nothing to do with you. So the minute you have that information in your head, you can operate and be able to see things that I think people who throw up their guard are not able to see. Women don't thrive, not let me, I'm using a generalization, women don't thrive in an environment where everybody's screaming at each other all the time. And, and it's not like that anymore, really. It's really not. But there is a lot of hostility in business, especially when there's a lot of money at stake. So there can be barbs and, and darts thrown in a way that they wouldn't be in a different kind of a setting. So if you can't handle that kind of stuff, then maybe it's not for you. Or maybe you should create your own, like I did. I wanted to create my own environment so people weren't throwing phones and smashing keyboards in my office. 
And I successfully did that. We didn't have that kind of an environment. But in order to for women to get into finance, which I implore women, please come into finance, please, because we need different translators. We need translators that are women who can speak to women, women who can speak to men about money, about finance, about investing, because women speak differently about investing than men do. Again, another generalization, but I think that women, I don't want to say women have more caution or, or women are more conservative because I don't think that that's the case necessarily. I think that just women think much more longer term and have a lot more, they feel like there's a lot more at stake. It's not just going to Las Vegas and, and throwing the dice and, and then you get to go home. It's everything. It's buying the diapers. It's thinking about the kid going to college. It's, it's the whole long stream of life that women think about. And not that men don't, again, but I think just women take that into account in business in general, because it is such a critical part of our lives. Yeah. Interesting. It, there is a very different mindset there, right? And it, it's, you know, I always feel like if we bring up this, you know, the the discussion of, of males and females and gender and all this kind of stuff, it's a bit of a, a minefield, but in general, I would just say, I feel like the finance industry is, is very, you know, it can be an aggressive place to be. Yeah. It always and, has been. And, and to me, I also looked at that. And I'm like, well, if it's an aggressive business in itself, it's like, that's the way it is. And there are going to be some firms like you went out there and created, which don't have that same culture, but they don't all have, you know, or they aren't all like that. So it's almost, I think, uh, to a degree, an acceptance of what the industry is like, and then going mm-hmm. forward. And I've heard some great advice from other women in finance who said, you know, surround yourself with the people who are who are those positive, the men who are those positive influences yes. to help bring them up in their careers. And all of the others who are being assholes, just don't give them the time of day. F and, them. Exactly. And don't even dwell exactly. on them. And so, yeah, it's fascinating because it is... Uh, it's got an interesting history or perhaps yeah. a bit I of mean, infamous history. Wall Street, you know, is kind of like a, just like a military industrial complex. It feeds on itself. It, it created this circle of virtuous life for itself so that it always was necessary. There's the financial industrial complex, which was the same thing, which was big firms talking down to people saying, you need this. It's none of your business why you need this, but you need this right now. And we're the only ones that have the information and can tell you about it. You can't do this yourself. You know, so it's this cycle of like, well, I don't know. My broker only knows I don't know anything about money. I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea how to do that. Bullshit. Like we do. And I say this to women all the time. Like, do you shop? And they're like, yeah, of course I shop. Well, then you know what value is. You know that you're not going to buy, you know, if you're going to buy a big puffy down suit at the beginning of the summer season then you're going to pay much less for it than you are at the beginning of the winter season. Like that's just value, right? You got to know when you're going to buy something, when it's a value, when it's not a value. So that kind of thing is when you tell women that, not all women, men too, but of course you have to talk in generalities. Of course. (laughs) They kind of say like, oh yeah, yeah, actually I do that all the time. You know, I used to have women who, I have women clients who run giant budgets, hundred million dollar budgets. And they're like, oh my God, Danny, I don't understand what you do one bit. It's just really cool, but I don't get the stock market. And I'm like, yes, you do. You get the stock market because you understand what you're paying for, when you're paying for it. You know, it's all an economic cycle. So really just kind of, again, translating one thing to the other is really what is important. Translating that 
value is value, growth is growth. I gotcha. Yeah. I'm curious now, like, what are you seeing in the markets and, and what's the general feel you have south of the border right now? I haven't spoken with a lot of, uh, uh, we don't actually, we don't have any American clients. So I haven't talked a lot with anybody about what you're seeing or what's going on. So what's your take? Sure. There's been a giant haircut and especially on the growth companies and the valuations that we've seen in the market, because there's been, there has been probably for the last, I would say two or three years, this rush to buy growth at all costs. So you weren't really caring about the bottom line. You were really caring about spending, digital advertising, marketing, these numbers that are kind of like akin to what eyeballs were in the late 90s. So, you know, we have all this marketing growth and we've got, you know, all of these infiltrations into this market and that market, but really profits are profits and profits continue to be the ruling dichotomy in the market at all times. And we're back to that realm. So we've seen giant haircuts in some of the really big growth companies, Facebook or Meta, Microsoft, Apple is coming, Snap just got snapped in half today. Yeah. And I think that that you probably saw that, right? I said to my kids, I was like, are you not using Snap as much as as you were before? They were like, Snap is never going away. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, when that gets a little bit more profitable, then maybe I'll step back in. (laughs) But, um, you know, what we're seeing now is we're going to see a turn towards distressed. So we're going to see a lot more companies that are in distressed situations. Maybe they have too much debt or they got upside down in one way or another. And so they aren't going to be able to raise capital at the level that they did the last time. So they're gonna have to do a down round. Some of them will need recaps. You know, So we're gonna see a lot more activity in that distressed side of the market, which just means that value is coming back into play. And you know, stock pickers can really take their time in picking their stocks. So what this means is, Profits, profits, profits. You've got to really hone in on your profits. You've got to really hone in on your margins. You've got to really start telling the story about how you're being focused on that bottom line. I think that that is the critical messaging that has to go along with the environment that we're in right now, because this is not going to change for some time. Inflation is not going to go away. The supply chain issue isn't going to go away. And really, I think we're going to see a lot more manufacturing come into the North America region. So that means Canada, Mexico, the United States. And even though it's going to be cheaper overseas, ultimately it's not because it's going to take too long to get here. It's going to be too expensive to get across those oceans. Yeah. Interesting. I I found it really interesting to watch how narratives change when you're out raising capital. And for a while there, it was like, I mean, companies that had pretty much a pitch deck were raising debt, convertible debt. And you're like, it was kind of the, you know, the soup du jour, the finance du jour was, was go do a debt financing. Everybody's doing it. Capital's cheap. And it was like, who in the hell debt finance is basically a, a startup with, with nothing. But it was yeah. happening. It was crazy. Yes. But so now hearing an energy makes absolute sense. It's like, okay, it's time to bring it back to profits. And so sharpen the pencil and and you know, layoffs, cutbacks if need be. It's it's going to happen, you know. So I find that it's neat to watch how the narratives change within the market. I am also keeping an eye out and thinking about the world of onshore. And I mean, whoever thought like like the history in the last two years has been as much history as perhaps the last 10 or 15 years, you yes. know, these major events. 
So this volatility and and to say that perhaps it's cheaper by a dollar value of putting your money overseas to bring it back in goods for manufacturing, the time it could take or the risk it could take, it's it's a lot of you start to be factored into the operations of companies. So I'm really interested about more onshoring happening and seeing how that will work out. Yeah. And I think too, you know, one other big piece, Corey, that I know has been told over and over, and in fact, we're using one of the dynamics right now here on Zoom, is that the acceptance of this digital landscape has been, it's just been absolutely embraced by so many companies that you never thought would get there. So that means that so many more people are working from home. Um, We're able to get done so much more because we have this digital landscape and because we can notarize stuff digitally and we can send things digitally that we never could before. We can have meetings digitally that would never be allowed to, to happen that way. So I think business has transformed to accept this digital landscape and what business owners need to really do when you talked about sharpening that pencil is to get real with ripping off the Band-Aid of excess stuff. You don't necessarily need all the people that you need, but you need to pay those good people more because that talent, that talent in your rocket ship, those people are so critical to your profitability. And if you have too much stuff because you're waiting for things to kind of revert to normal, they're not going back to normal. But people stay and work at home, you know, save the money, get rid of the real estate and really hunker down and pay your people really well and slice off all of the other things that you don't need. And then you'll really be able to vault to the next level. Yeah, that's, a, you know, brings me to another thing that's been on my mind is the world of work and remote work and commercial real estate. Because like oh, that yeah. is, who's going back to the office, it feels like, hey, yes, I think it's really important. But that whole world of how that's going to be is pretty interesting. And the changes that are happening there. Totally. But, uh, yeah, totally couple other questions. Uh, one that comes to mind is most memorable kind of stories you have from working on Wall Street and working with the people you have. You know, what's perhaps the most memorable or influential for you? I gave you a couple of them, but I would have to say that, you know, probably the most memorable, I wouldn't say the most memorable times because there've been lots of like crazy things that have happened, but just some things that were like signs of the times that I think were really interesting is that you know, back in like the late 90s, when we were in that absolute boom of, you know, all the internet companies and everybody was going public and deals were up 100%, 200% that first day, you know, things were going crazy. I ran the IPO and secondary desk at the firm that I was at, MH Meyerson, which is no longer in business, like most market making firms. And, you know, we'd have three or four deals starting every day that were coming public, except Monday. Monday was never an IPO day. And, you know, four of them started with A, like all you knew was a symbol and who was the underwriter. And the fact that you had like six institutions that were selling through you. You were the, I was the back door to every Robinson Humphreys deal, Robbie Stevens deal. Let's see, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, all of those guys. And so we would be selling and selling into this insane buying period. And the parties that Wall Street had were outrageous. They were outrageous. They would, would they would take over these giant institutions in Manhattan and like have lavish, lavish, ridiculous parties. We had one year for Staney, which is the Security Traders Association of New York, where there'd be like 
a thousand people at this party at the Marriott Marquis, and you'd have Donna Summer singing, you'd have shrimp the size of your head, like on a giant table, like 20 feet long, you know, it was just an, it was a crazy factory. Everybody's doing drugs. It was insane. It was really insane. Nowadays, like it's all computerized, you know, any market makers are specialists. They're like the low people on the totem pole. There's not a lot of expertise there anymore. I mean, there's still expertise there, but those guys are doing something else, you know, and it's a totally different world. So, so you kind of have to look to, you kind of have to look to who's spending the marketing money to see really what businesses are floating at the top, right? Where they have the biggest margins or they have the most money. You know, that's where I always tell my kids this, what commercials are you seeing on TV over and over and over? Those are the guys that are making the most money. You know, those are the businesses mm. that are making the most money right now. Think about it, you know, Coinbase, you know, not yeah. right the second, but, and companies like all of the drug makers, you know, they're all making gobs and gobs of money. So they're advertising like crazy, all the insurance companies advertising like crazy. So, so that's like your clue as to where that big money is being spent. So anyway, that was a long sorted tale and yeah. telling you that Wall Street is not that anymore. Yeah, no, it, Wall Street really has changed, hasn't it? I mean, hear about the trading floors that were like, you know, the size of a football field and it's now it's now all in servers. And you've got yes. some incredibly smart people, you know, triple major MIT kind of intelligence who are there working on slimming down the the time it takes to make a trade. So no wonder the market makers are gone. It's because yeah. it's now over to computer science to to be as efficient as possible. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's there's some wild history there, but it's changed and, and the computer. It has changed. It has changed dramatically. And, you know, you also see it in, in who the players are. So back in the, in the very late nineties, early two thousands, all the ECNs, the electronic communication networks like Archipelago and Instanet, they all came online where you could see them through as, as if they were market makers, but they weren't making markets. You know, they weren't taking positions. They were just charging you on the bid or on the offer. It didn't matter. They were making money no matter what. It mm. might have been a lot less money, but they were making money no matter what. And I okay. realized like, oh my gosh, that's the future because those guys, they don't care. They don't have to have a book. They don't need to have all of this excess thing where they're betting on X, Y, or Z and taking every trade personally. They do not care. So as soon as I saw that, I realized that things are going to change pretty soon. And nobody, I shouldn't say nobody paid attention to it, but the players that should have, like the New York Stock Exchange, they didn't pay attention to technology like that. And soon enough, maybe a few years later, they were bought by the ECM, by Archipelago. So wow. that change comes fast and quick. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Hmm. Are you a reader? Do you read much? I do. I love to read. I love to awesome. read. What do you read? Most of what I read is medieval history because I'm fascinated by really? medieval times. Yes. Barbara Tuckman is one of my favorite authors. She's re She's written a lot of different books, but some of her medieval history is really the best stuff out there because she really takes you there. But I also read a lot about the markets and what's going on in our universe. And I, I really think that futurism is fascinating to me. So anything about, you know, gaming the future or thinking about how the future might exist, I think is really interesting. And I also love sci-fi because I think that science fiction is really kind of it tends to show you where we're going, except for all the like world is ending, world is ending, world is ending. Yeah, yeah. And every single sign, every single Marvel movie, I should say, the world is up, oh, it's ending again. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. But well, I, you know. I love those kinds of things because I think that that kind of gives you a tell to you know where the innovation might be happening and, and gives clues to the path forward.
That's so cool. Um, one of the interviews we just did recently was with Anne Rosenberg, who she's got a really, really interesting career in, in technology, working with very big names, and is a futurist. She looks to the future and, and thinks about, you know, what is Web 3.0? Yes. And one of her big, I think she wrote a book, in fact, she did write a book on this, is about how science fiction is where you should look to start mm. thinking about the future. Because if you think about it, there's so much stuff that was written, you know, 50, 60 years ago, talking about like a touch screen. And all of a sudden we're there. And so, you know, how does that stuff start to inform the future that we're moving into? So yeah, the technological yeah. advances. In fact, I got a, a shot today. I'm on this new fangled prescription and the shot comes in a tube and it literally looks exactly like Star Trek when they go like this, like that because wow. it's all embedded inside the tube but it was i was like oh my god i'm on star trek <laughs> but yeah. again that was like 60 70 years ago but still yeah you know that is the direction that we moved into so far so i think you're right that pathway it's like we make all these as humans we make these pathways for each other in terms of our own innovation our own uh imaginatory thinking so that that is the way that we're guided in the same way that, you know, when you use your left hand to do things, it makes new neural passageways. So right. I think that it's tunneling is fascinating to me. Ah, cool. Lots well, of, I also think about uh, the history piece. And if you haven't, some will have heard about this probably a lot is Dan Carlin and hardcore history. Oh my God. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. Of like all just time, I love off the hook. His Great stuff. Oh eh? my God. Yeah. Yeah, he it, says, unquote, <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, I know he gets so into it, right? Yeah, yeah, he's so great. I'm such a fangirl of his. I love him. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hey, Danny, what do you say we wrap this up? I maybe I'll have one more question for you is just any final advice for, for issuers and perhaps even more important. I just want to hear advice that you would give to any females in the industry, like just the, you know, that sage advice they need. What do you have? Sure. So to any women in the industry or wanting to get into the industry, don't look at it as it's all spreadsheets and Excel and boring stuff and analytics because it's totally not. I really believe that I'm a creative because I'm a creative thinker. I'm a creative person in general, even though that doesn't really jive with what you think Wall Street is. The reason that I'm creative is because there's so much possibility on Wall Street. There's so many different ways to think about something, to fund something, to introduce companies that I see it as a very creative endeavor. And so I would invite people, not only just women, but anyone who's got a creative bent to come to Wall Street to see all of the different things that exist. You don't have to only be a financial advisor or crunch numbers. You can really be a people person and be a translator. Yeah. I think it's great advice because it's such a misconception that Wall Street is not just, it's not science. It's exactly. art. Yeah. It is art. It's totally art. I mean, yes, there's science to it and there's a lot of yes. like quantitative and analytical things and maybe really about connecting people, connecting, you know, the money with the need. And that has to do with connecting humans. So well, awesome. Danny, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Corey. It was so great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.